Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Acts chapter 15 and verse 22 to verse 41. And we've come to this point in the narrative with two points left to learn from, to notice, to talk about and to learn from regarding the great council at Jerusalem. So let's update ourselves on the history we've learnt so far. The council of Jerusalem has reached its conclusion. The debate has ended and the chairman, James, with an air of authority, has proclaimed the decree of the council, laying out the way forward. Paul and Barnabas will be returning to Antioch and they'll be starting preparations for their next missionary journey, the second missionary journey. But the elders of the church at Jerusalem have decided to send two others with them to reinforce the message of the decision that they have taken. We read in the scriptures that both these people are described as leading men among the brethren. And that's highly significant. So once the decision has been made at the council that a Gentile does not need to become a Jew in order to become a Christian, the elders act decisively and with great courtesy to their Gentile brethren. After all, great offence must have been caused and a rift must now be avoided and there was the obvious perception that the incident that occurred back in chapter 15 and verse 1, certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. The perception must have occurred that those men were an official delegation, that their doctrine of salvation by faith and works uh, was under the official sanction of James and the Jerusalem church. Certainly it seems that James had sent that delegation, even if that wasn't the message they were meant to proclaim. For when Paul, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11 to 12, recounts the disagreement between himself and Peter, he says that when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed for before certain men came from James. So perhaps they had simply exceeded their authority. Because in verse 24 in Acts 15, um, the letter makes it clear that no such commandment was given to them. But now decisive action has to be taken. It has to be conciliatory action. And so it was. A reply sent orally via Paul and Barnabas is not going to be enough. To reinforce the message that Jerusalem believed as they did, that salvation is by grace through faith alone, they put the decision in writing and they appointed two high-ranking officials, two chief men among the brethren, 
to make it very personal. They were, in effect, the guarantors of the decision of the Jerusalem Council. I pause for a moment. How valuable, in the context of a Christian assembly, how valuable is a personal visit? It's um, good that the church sends its greetings to people. It's good that we pray for others that can't be here. But in a pastoral context, a personal visit from a chief man among the brethren is part of the pastoral care of the church and should not be neglected. Sadly, in modern churches, the pastor has become more of the leader of the church, become like a business executive, a CEO. He sits in his office and he runs the church, manages it. That's not the job of a pastor. The pastor's job is to feed the sheep and to shepherd the flock. And that requires personal care. And the Jerusalem elders understood that. It's not enough just to send a message saying we're with you in this. They had to send two leading men among the brethren to exhort and to comfort the Christians that were afar off. I think there's lessons for that in us. Pastoral visitation is an essential part of the local church's ministry. Let's look at this passage. We've got the leaders who are being sent. We've got the letter that's been written. And we've got the lifting of a terrible burden. The leaders, the letter, the lifting of the burden. Verse 22. It pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, named Bersabus, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. Who were they? Judas Bersabus or Bersabbas. And we know very little about this man, don't we? We know that he was in high office in the Jerusalem church. We know that he was a prophet, that he was a preacher who declared the will of God in contemporary situations. Verse 32, Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also, uh, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. They as in the role of prophets, they had a preaching ministry to build up the church. That's the role of a prophet. Now, Barsabas is a surname, a patronym. So, possibly the Judas, this Judas, may have been the brother of Joseph Barsabas or Barsabas. If you look back just to Acts chapter 1 and verse 23, it should be easy enough to find it quickly. Acts chapter 1 and verse 23. 
You'll see there that we have someone else of that surname. And they appointed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice. So there's someone else who has that patronymic. Somebody else who uh, bears the same night. may well just be a coincidence. And then there's Silas. Silas we have more information about. We know him. Silas was also known as Silvanus. And we know that he was a Roman citizen from Acts chapter 16. We know that he too was a prophet, so he was a preacher and encourager of the brethren. We know that he was due to return to Jerusalem um, along with Judas after they had delivered the message to Antioch. In verse 34, if you look at it for a moment, you'll see that Silas stayed in in, um, Antioch, remained at Antioch along with Paul. And we know that later he went with Paul on his second missionary journey. Perhaps the most well-known story from the life of Silas was where he and Paul were imprisoned at Philippi in Acts chapter 16, a passage I was, exact passage that I was preaching on this morning in Ballymacashan. And they were singing praises to God when an earthquake shook them free from their chains and there was a wonderful miracle happened. The jailer was gloriously saved. And his words, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in all thy house. Those words have echoed down through history to us. Now these two leading men among the brethren were very well qualified to carry this weighty message from the very heart of the church, that we're all sinners and that we're all saved in exactly the same way through Christ alone, the leaders. Then we have the letter, verse 23. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Now, this letter is not just a legal setting out of the decision. Sometimes how we say things can be just as important as what we actually say, apparently. I seem to get myself into trouble all the time. My wife, one day, lamented that it was no wonder we never had any customers when we were in business because you couldn't tell what I might say to them, apparently. A girl came into the photography studio in Dundonald a few years back with a wee baby. And I said to her, what do you call your wee baby boy? Coo, coo, coo. You know what you do? And you're looking at the wee baby. What do you, what do you call him? Oh, she says, I've called him Corbin. I says, Corbin, do you seriously know what that means? You know what Corbin is in the Bible, don't you? Of course the girl hadn't a clue. And then when she left, my wife says to me, that girl never be back. Sure enough, there she was. I couldn't understand it. Honestly, you just can't enlighten people these days. 
But this is not a letter that just says, states facts blandly. This is well and truly a pastoral letter. A letter full of concern for the church, for the individual believers at Antioch. So I want to look at its caring nature, for words can sometimes unsettle the soul. Look at verse 24. We have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words. Wonder what effect the preaching of those people from Judea had upon the people in Antioch. I wonder when they heard that their salvation was not sufficient. I wonder when they heard that trusting in Christ alone for their salvation was not enough, but that they would have to do something in order to be saved, add something to what Christ has already done. I wonder would there have been worry I wonder, would there have been anxiety? Because what about those who had trusted Christ in that manner and then had died and they'd been buried believing that they'd gone to be with the Lord? What about our loved ones? Was there fear? Their souls had been troubled. These people had told them. You need to be circumcised and become a Jew in order to be a Christian. How alarming would that be to someone who's already just been told that Jesus saves through grace alone? What doubts would that cause? Would people be asking themselves the question, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Do I have to do something else? We can so easily unsettle the soul, especially of a young believer with troublesome words. So we need to be careful. The second pastoral aspect to this, and it's a very practical one. If you look at verse 25, it demonstrates a remarkable amount of unity among those who had been attending the council at Jerusalem. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men. Now we've been looking at that council, haven't we? And we've been seeing we've been seeing that there had been a debate, a passionate debate. We've seen that different sides had been taken. We've seen that at the start of the council the positions had been entrenched that strong opinions had been expressed by both the Judaizers and the apostles, and that the apostles' testimony, Peter's theological arguments, Paul's testimony of the events on the ground as the Gentiles were swept into God's kingdom, that there had been silence as they pondered upon what had been said. But the debate had been settled. And the decision has been reached. And the assembly has been concluded. And there is now complete unity and agreement as to the way forward. Let me try to bring this home pastorally 
through an illustration. Uh, maybe a humorous illustration. But at a previous church where I was the pastor, I was astonished when it came to December to discover when I came into church one large day morning that they had erected this giant Christmas tree at the front of the church. And I say giant, it reached the ceiling. And the ceiling was higher than this ceiling. It was intrusive. And like everything in there, it was way over the top. And I discovered that every year a group of women would get together and spend an evening erecting this monstrosity in the front of the church. I disliked it intensely. People used to sit and watch it, twinkling lights, instead of listening to me preaching. Can you imagine that? And I genuinely believed that such a thing had no place in the house of the Lord. And my tolerance of the thing ended when I came into the church one Sabbath morning and found that somebody had placed a giant glow-in-the-dark Rudolph in front of the tree. It was like Samson and the pillars in the, in the temple. There was a holy rage that failed. I grabbed the Rudolph and I hastily, physically ejected it from the building without even trying to find out who owned it. So later on that year, I put a proposal to the church meeting. The tree should go. There was a fierce debate. I presented the arguments that I thought were relevant. And somebody else from the congregation told me the reasons why that the tree should stay. After all, the tree had been the gift of a prominent church family. And you see, they were good givers and we can't offend them. So a compromise was reached. As always, it's congregationalism. The tree would be erected as usual the next Christmas, but not in the sanctuary but rather outside in the big porch where the coffee shop was and the people gathered for tea and biscuits after the service and after the service they could gather around the tree and they wouldn't be offended. It was agreed. I was happy to some extent at getting it away from the front of the church. But when December came, the tree didn't. It couldn't be seen. And transpired that the women who regularly erected the monstrosity had gone on strike and decided that if they couldn't have it at the front of the church, they weren't going to put it up at all, even though a decision had been reached in the church council. The tree didn't appear. Eventually, some of the young people erected a smaller version on the grounds that if they didn't, I would have won anyway. In a godly church, when we come together to seek the will of the Lord, and we seek his face in prayer, and we read the scriptures, and we seek the will of the Lord, in scriptures and in understanding the word 
And a decision is made. In the early church, everyone is satisfied with that. It's interesting here that when the letter is written, in verse 28, it says, It seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. Isn't that good to know? That their deliberations in the council were guided by the Lord. And that even those who had come in with different ideas were open to persuasion and now were prepared to be of one accord. The third pastoral point is one that I've partially already made. That messages are always best delivered personally. So chosen men went with beloved Barnabas and Paul. In verse 26, it tells us, Men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chosen men who have risked their lives for Jesus, Judas and Silas. These men were chosen men. These men were specially selected for this task. This was a delicate task. This was a task that was going to need diplomacy and tact. When I went to my very, very first church, I was told by one of the leaders of that denomination, you will be in a difficult situation. You will need a kid gloves approach. Of course, I went in like a bull in a china shop. These men were chosen for this task. It's a delicate task. But they were courageous men. These are men who have hazarded their lives, verse 26. That, of course, wouldn't be unusual in the early church. Stephen and James have already given their lives for Jesus. But the inclusion of this phrase here makes me wonder if these men were of the party of converted Pharisees. Do you remember last time when we looked at the participants in the council? We noticed that there were Pharisees there. And do you remember that we learned from that that for a Pharisee to come to Christ would be a very costly decision indeed. The original men from Jerusalem had troubled the believers with a Pharisaical message. And I wonder if Judas and Silas, as converted Jews, were actually people who had a Pharisaical background, who were sent deliberately to reverse the damage that were done. They were chosen men. They were courageous men. Verse 27, they are capable men. They're going to tell you the same things that you're going to read in this letter and they're going to do it by mouth. There's another pastoral issue in this letter. And it is that we don't burden young and new Christians. Verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. These are young believers in Antioch. 
And they're Gentile believers. They're coming into a completely new situation. It's a whole new world to them. A whole new world. They're coming in from pagan society into a Christian assembly. And they're mixing with people who have thousands of years of history behind them, worshipping or attempting to worship the God who created the earth and the heavens. They need to be encouraged and built up and taught the basics. Do you know, we have a pagan society today, don't we? There are people in this society who know absolutely nothing. If you ever listen to about Christianity, if you ever listen to some of the, the quiz shows on the radio or the television, you will notice that Bible questions, questions about Christian truth, simple, basic questions that you would have asked in a Sunday school and a six or seven-year-old would have answered, they, they don't. They don't know the answers. We live in a pagan society. When one of those pagans becomes a Christian and comes into a Christian assembly, very often they're overwhelmed by Christian doctrine. We have to not burden them, but encourage them. And lastly, if we're looking at pastoral issues in this letter, as Christians, we don't go out of our way to be offensive to other Christians. Verse 29. That ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. Now we noticed this when we looked at the, at the proceedings of the council. We have noticed that in fellowship with other believers, as these Gentile Christians are in fellowship with Jewish believers, we're not to deliberately offend or shock other believers. There is no point in destroying Christian fellowship over minor and essential issues. So, it's a letter, but it's not a legal document, not strictly. It's a pastoral letter. It's a letter full of concern. It's a letter that is full of love. It's a letter that reminds the Christians of all the pastoral issues that have led to this council, that words can unsettle the soul, that Christians should be united even after a decision has been made in the church meeting, that a message is best delivered personally, that we don't burden young or new Christians and that we don't go out of our way simply to find ways of attacking other believers or offending them. So we've had the leaders, we've had the letter and the time's nearly up so we'll have the lifting of the burden in verse 30. So when they were dismissed they came to Antioch when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. Back in Antioch, the delegation have delivered their report to the church. They've read out the letter from Jerusalem and the Christians who are not Jews and the Jewish Christians greatly rejoice in what's been read out. 
verse 31 says, when they had read it, they rejoiced. We're told here that they were encouraged. They had consolation. Why was the letter so encouraging? Well, not just because of its pastoral content, but because of its doctrinal content. To know that your sins are forgiven. To know that the burden of the law... Remember that the preachers from Judea in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1 had tried to bring them back under the bondage of the law. Now they've been told that the burden of the law has been lifted from them. What a cause for joy. What a cause for encouragement to know that your sins are forgiven, to know that the debt has been paid, to know that the condemnation has been removed. Hitherto, from that visit until this time, they have been troubled in their souls by the burden that they may have to face under the heavy weight of the law. Now, the burden has been lifted. Years ago, when I was going out with my wife before we get married in order to win her affections and more importantly try to persuade her father to allow me to marry her I had to go on the Lord's Day evening to the Gospel Hall with the family and get put at the back and they used to sing a wee hymn and you know it came to my mind when I was thinking about this they sang this hymn, Free from the law, O happy condition. Jesus hath bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law, and bruised by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us once and for all. Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O doubter, believe it. Cling to the cross. And the burden will fall, for Christ hath redeemed us once and for all. That must have been what it was like for those people in Antioch. They'd heard that the burden had been lifted. And we need that kind of encouragement, don't we? We need to be reminded from time to time in our preaching, in our conversation that our burden of sin is gone, that we are free from the condemnation of the law. Galatians 3 and verse 13, Paul writes, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us. Is it any wonder they rejoiced? The burden has been lifted. And they reciprocated, for they sent messengers back from Jerusalem with a greeting from the brethren at Antioch to the apostles. As believers, we all encourage each other. So the council has ended. And the decree has been issued and conveyed to the church at Antioch in a very kind-hearted, loving, pastoral letter. 
personally delivered. A letter that encourages the Christians and reminds them and teaches them that the burden of guilt and condemnation under which they were laboring has been removed by Christ. What a great encouragement.